Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. It's episode number 155. The whole crew here, John, Logan, and Phil today with you. We're talking about outdoor podcasting season, uh, tools, how our shops change over time and whether they need to, as well as other topics that come up along the way. I hope you enjoy today's episode. You want a glue that you can trust, and fortunately, Tightbond has the glue you need to get the job done with confidence. From interior glues with strong initial tack and short clamp time to exterior glues with exceptional strength and water resistance, look to Tightbond, the right glue for your next project. For more information, visit tightbond.com. Now, last week on the show, we were talking about whether woodworking had a season. Mm-hmm. Which apparently sparked a nerve because we had quite a few comments on that. So I, I'm just going to read read a sampling here. Uh, most of them are representative by a guy named Mark who said, I would work all year long whenever the mood or need hits me. Tim writes, I retired about 10 years ago at 56. I was a middle school principal. And while he was working, did most of his woodworking during the summer months. Since retiring, my woodworking season is mainly October through March. While I still try to get shop time in during the other months, other outdoor activities take precedence. Golf, yard work, grandkid activities, etc. I have a standalone heated shop, and I love spending my Indiana winter days in it. And my wife likes this also. Andrew says, first of all, I've been watching and listening to you guys for a while. I love self-flocking as opposed to man glitter. Although none of the although the non-woodworkers non don't get it. Uh, second, my wife travels for work as well. Every time she leaves, I discover something the kids don't know how to do. Yep, there goes my day. Time to learn a new thing, kids. Uh, had a couple of people from the south writing in talking about stuff. Frank lives in has a garage shop in North Carolina. Word working season is whenever he can get out to the garage working around honeydew schedules. He has a small heater for the colder months and a big fan for the hot months. Uh, Walt lives in very lower Alabama, 20 minutes from the Gulf. We're surrounded on all sides by swamp and water. It's always wet here, so we laugh when other places talk about being humid. Temperature-wise... There may be cumulatively a month every couple of years where the tools are too cold to use much or the glue doesn't flow properly. But for the most part, it's always warm enough to work in the shop. Summertime, that's a different story. Between July and September, I try to get in the shop early, 6 to 7. I know it's time to stop when the sweat starts dripping onto my cast iron surfaces, usually about 1 p.m. I'll clean the sweat, wax the spot, and take a break till 4-ish. Typical for an afternoon shower to cool things off, then it can get back to it. Um, and then there was, yeah, Daniel writes, I have a luxury of a climate-controlled shop in Indiana or in Virginia and retired in 2017. Every day is a potential shop day. So there you go. Although this one was funny to me. Glenn has, I'm retired and a year-round woodworker here in north-central Florida. If the temps get below the 50s, I cannot work. I enjoy the podcast, but I think they run too long. In my opinion, about 30 <laughs> minutes is long enough. 
I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just shut it off at 30 minutes. You're probably not missing yeah. anything. Maybe we, right. we start breaking these out into two parts. Yeah. Although I think it's funny that it, once the temperature gets below the 50s for him, he can't work. But I'm like, if it starts to get above 40, I'm like, oh, yeah. Yep. yep. There it it's is. shop time. Yeah, it depends, I guess, which direction we're going. If it's warming up to 40, right, then yes. it's like, oh, put on the shorts. We're going outside. But if it's like, <laughs> you know, fall and it starts dipping below 30, it's like, oh, it's too cold. Yep. It's like chunky so, sweater time. Yeah. Yep. But as you can see, for the people who are listening on YouTube, that uh, Logan has entered outdoor podcast season. Yep. And mm -hmm. in the background, that's not a soundtrack. Those really are legit birds going on back there. Yes, so. they are. I think he's just in front of a green screen and then has <laughs> like bird track going. It's like, it's like one of those teams meeting backgrounds. Yep. Right. Yep. Yep. If I move my head really fast, you'll see what's actually behind me. Yep. Yeah. It's a blur. Because yep. what am I hearing? A wren? Is that what we got going on back there? I could not. I can't see any of them. No idea. All I see are the giant carpenter bees flying around. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a wren to me. There you go. Cool. All right. Here's the thing that I wanted to talk about today to start with. And it stems from the fact that we are sending out another issue of shop notes into the world. Mm -hmm. And I always try and come up with something, and you run into this too, Logan, of something to talk about for the editor's letter, fully yeah. knowing that other than our mothers, not many people are reading that. Yeah. And what I was thinking about, and I think it came about from the projects, several of the projects in there, is how a workshop changes over time, mm -hmm. even though... A lot of you, a lot of woodworking content creators or books or whatever, try and tell people in setting up shop kind of things that there is a, there's a one way for a shop to be. The shop like you flow. have, yeah, you have to find your ultimate setup where, you know, wood comes in this door and then it goes through this step and this step and, you know, it's kind of like following the maze at IKEA and then out at the end comes a furniture project. Mm -hmm. And for anybody who's listened to the podcast for any length of time, especially in the last few months, on the saga of Logan's shop, knows <laughs> that uh, plans change. Mm -hmm. I, I, I feel like working on this issue of shop notes, there are a few things I'm like, oh, that would be really cool to build for the shop. But I'm like, I know how this story plays out. And this <laughs> story plays out by me building it and then never using it. <laughs> sure. Mm -hmm. You know, just for my own personal shop. Like other people, yeah, heck yeah, they'll use the crap out of it. But there are certain things that I'm like, hmm. I mean, that in theory sounds cool because I've done this before. Like I want to build that and I build it and then I don't use it and then it goes mm -hmm. away. And my shop changes because of that. So... I mean, just if you get it done, that's a victory. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. Which I think is a valuable lesson to think about is like, there's no, 
there's little harm in building something or trying something and then moving on from it. No, not at all. Like, especially if all you have wrapped up into it is time and a little bit of material. So what? Yeah. Because I also feel like it's one of those things where you could move it on to somebody who could use it, whether you just Mm -hmm. give it to them or sell it or any combination of the two or whatever that you just, you've learned something in the process of either making it or figuring out that, no, I don't actually use this thing, even though I thought I would. And here are two reasons why or whatever. I think Mm -hmm. it's, it's an important part of an important part of the woodworking process. Yeah. Cause I was thinking with this is like one of your goals as you were working on your shop or planning it was that you wanted to have vintage tools mostly american made mm-hmm. in kind of more of your conduct in commercial slash industrial scale correct yep but even within that broad of a category things have changed for you yes they have right um, so like what yeah. would be your i mean i know you're not entirely set up in there but like where where are you at inventory wise for machines that you want to fit into this space okay Two lathes, the Oliver, the big Oliver, and the Vic Mark. I have three lathes right now, but one of them needs to go away. So <laughs> three lathes is ridiculous. Um, so those two, the Vic Mark is not vintage, not American made, but it's about the best lathe you can get, in my opinion. Um, so the Oliver Vic Mark, uh, the Towsley Jointer, okay, right. twenty-four inch Towsley Jointer. I have an eighteen-inch Powermatic PM. Uh, it's not PM. Uh, Powermatic 180. So it is a made in made in America, 18 inch Powermatic planer. Okay. okay. It's five horse, um, three phase, helical head in it, which is pretty awesome. Um, I also have the. I have a drill press, um, which John saw. <laughs> It's yeah. it's embarrassing. It is rusty. <laughs> it is it's a camelback drill press. So if anybody knows what that style is, it kind of has a big split, sweeping back on it. Um, it is as deep from the column backwards as it is as it is from the column forward. Um, flat belt driven. Um, it, it it needs a lot of work. So that one also, I would like it to go in the shop, but that is a like two years down the road type thing. Okay. Um, the 36 inch crescent bandsaw will go in the shop. I would like one other bandsaw to go in the shop, a smaller one, like a 14 to 20 inch. Okay. Um, somewhere around there. Something with a, a thinner, bl- a narrower blade so I can do curves, right? Um, because manhandling two 19 and a half foot long blades for that crescent would be ridiculous so (laughs) you might as well put it in once and just leave it forever um so that's where i'm sitting right now i mean and i have my saw stop now i did want to swap out my my saw stop table saw for a vintage one either a tanowitz a crescent an oliver something like that 
um, Yates American, maybe. My buddy Bobby, <laughs> who listens to this podcast, and I know is listening to this one, uh, had a little boo-boo. His table saw and him had a disagreement. And his table saw won that disagreement. And Bobby's down two tips of fingers, a third to be determined. Um, that was just this last weekend. Um, and he, he, it was, it was a, um, it hit close to home because Bobby's one of my good, good friends. And I know Bob knows tools. And Bob texted when he texted me. He was texting back and forth pictures and stuff. I don't know how he's texting though, because he ain't got no fingers no more. I mean, he does, but <laughs> I actually, <laughs> oh, bad joke. Anyways, yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, uh, he said he said something that I have heard from every single person I have talked to in person that has had a table saw accident, and his his exact words were, "I don't even know what happened." And I have heard everybody, I think I've heard Dylan say the same thing on his accident on the table saw. I don't know what happened. Because I think it happens that fast. That it's like you're you're cutting, you're going along, you're cutting fine, and something happens. The board drifts away from the fence. The, I don't know, it binds and it kicks back. I don't know. Something happens, and everybody that has had a table saw accident basically says the same thing. So, that... Bobby's accident kind of has given me pause on getting rid of my saw stop. So. Okay. That's fair. Cause I know that we've had uh, in the, in our shop here just this week, we've had some issues with the saw stop firing on stuff that it necessarily shouldn't fire on. Like Mark, Mark was cutting some half inch MDF and it, uh, triggered on him and Steve was setting up another one and using the little gauge to make sure that the blade was the proper distance away and that caused it to trigger so yeah and I don't know I don't know why to be fair we've had problems with that saw stop firing yeah both actually but yeah two I mean maybe may, yeah maybe maybe it's just the saw stops have been taught they They've been, <laughs> they've been fired on miter gauges. They've been yeah. conditioned to fire. Yeah, yeah. Never yeah, on flesh, though. No, no. No, I don't think so. That's been yeah. That's been kind of interesting. Yeah, maybe. But the funny thing is, is we hear about these you know table saw accidents a lot, and every time, it's like, oh, now I'm looking at a saw stop. But at that point, it's too late. You've already. I mean. You're not going to like you're, you're you can't you know, you're retroactively not, you're full, add yeah, a saw stop to your shop. Yeah. yeah. You, so yeah. Do you make the investment up front and you know, just bite the bullet yeah. or wait I until mean, something I, happens? Yeah. I will be interested to ask Bob, like, you know, Hey, give me your opinion. Like, or give me, give me the numbers. Like what did your trip to the ER cost you? Because when I talked to him the other day, he was going back into the orthopedic surgeon to, to double check his ring finger to see, mm-hmm. make sure that what they reattached was going to stay attached or if it had to come off. Yeah. Like, yeah. 
really what did that end up costing him? I will be interested to hear from him, like what that actual number is, because it's one of those things. If and I know, I know, we will get those comments. I've worked on tabletop for forty five years. I've never had an accident. I know, but there's always that but. What if you do? Like yeah. you pay car insurance, right? And you've never had an accident. So yeah. So you know, I don't know. It's just but I guess that is that is something that has caused me to change my plans on the shop, kind of. Okay. So yeah. Actually, picking up that second lathe unexpectedly <laughs> had me change the plans on the layout of the shop a bit. <laughs> and picking up the Oliver bandsaw, I'm changing the door size for my storage area into my shop because it's too tall to fit in a standard door. So, like, there's all these like shop. It's a it's an ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's always changing. It's always growing. Um, you know, looking. I actually had a memory pop up on Facebook here. I think yesterday or two days ago that twelve. 12 years ago today, I had my first workbench installed in my garage in my last house. Um, it's like, oh, look how far I've fallen. <laughs> <laughs> how far I've fallen. So. Perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you see yourself um, in your shop being able to move like some tools out into the, like the. Yeah outer part if you're not using yeah. them and moving them back and yes. forth or... that that's my plan because right now I don't really have a plan to have the router table will probably live in the shop mm-hmm. I don't know where <laughs> wherever I can find room probably um, but like my drum sander I'm not planning on using that every day it's on a mobile base I can roll that in and out of the shop so I'm absolutely planning on having a large portion of these tools on bases that I can actually roll out there and store out there more. So the ones that don't have cast iron tops that aren't going to rust, you know what I mean? Sure. Because I've actually noticed that with this, this Vic Mark has been in my garage since November, Um, November, December. Anyways, it's been in my garage for over basically over the winter. Um, It has a powder of rust on it. I wouldn't call it surface rust yet, but you wipe your hand on it and you can see the brown come up. So like sure. those are that's just the cast iron bed. Um I don't I don't want to battle that. So anything that doesn't have cast iron on it, my router table does not. It's a phenolic top router table. I could send that one out there. I could send the drum sander out there. Those are fine. Um you know, I will store those outside the shop. Not necessarily from a um not necessarily from a space standpoint i don't think but more of because of what i'm doing in the shop as far as photos and video and Mm -hmm. stuff like i just don't want i want i would rather have room for lights and camera than i would okay the tool so okay Mm -hmm. so where are you on i mean i know you're kind of focused on the shop itself where are you on tool restoration like for example have you heard anything about the cutter head on your Towsley no I emailed them a couple of uh, probably a month ago seeing where they were sitting on it I haven't heard from them so I need to need to reach back out to them um, okay. 
I have I, I've actually kind of been on hold on that Towsley because I was waiting for it to get warm enough out again to sandblast. Oh sure. So because it needs sandblasted, um, I did get actually I got Cerakote samples for the outside because oh. I've been considering automotive lacquer, automotive paint to paint it. But then I started thinking, you know what would be really sweet is the 100% um, factory condition Cerakote on it. Because, you know, that's what they did back in 1916 was Cerakote. Um, which, if anybody doesn't know what that is, it's basically a ceramic paint. Um, it's not original. Um, it's really big in the, um, like, gun manufacturers will Cerakote stuff. Um, it's a It's a really... It is about as tough as powder coating. Um, so I, I ordered a couple samples of that, and I am probably going to Cerakote it instead. Um, okay. They have some Air Cure Cerakotes. They have some um, oven bake ones. Obviously, I'm not going to bake it. <laughs> so, although I should have, I should have talked a little bit more in depth to Mark and Shelly Cedar blade when they were in town last week, because their brother's business is a powder coating business. Oh, and see, I could have that bad boy powder coated. Yep. You just have really to find expensive. a way to get it up there. I got a, I got a one ton. It'll fit. <laughs> <laughs> but just do it yeah. to schedule I've, a day. I know I have seen, I have seen, um, I think it was Keith Rucker on VintageMachinery.org. He has a YouTube channel, really good YouTube, one of my favorite YouTube channels now. Um, he had, I feel like it was a giant, um, not drill press, a giant bandsaw um, powder coated. And um, he was pretty happy with it, but you have to be really careful because the powder, they don't care about machine surfaces. They're like, just spray the powder. It's going to go on there. Yeah. And so I think I think Keith on that one he he like had masked everything with duct tape, so the powder coating wouldn't stick to the machine surfaces because the machine surfaces obviously it's machined for a reason. You want it to be machined. Um, yeah. You want a, a raw machine surface. So I don't know. I, it seems like it would be a pain in the butt. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yes, that's that's next. I'm gonna have um, I'm gonna have a mobile sandblaster come out and do it. I I was gonna do it. I'm just like you know what. I got better things to do, like finish the dang shop. <laughs> so I can have the guy come out. Take, I'll take a couple photos, pay him a couple hundred bucks to, to sandblast the entire thing so it's ready for paint. Then once it's ready for paint, I paint it, and then I put it back together. Then I just got to wait for the cutter head. I do have to. That's, that's you the, gotta, the biggest you motor hold. too, right? I do have to get a motor, yeah. Um, the biggest, I can, I can foresee this roadblock coming. Um, I do have to have new bearing blocks cast for it, but I kind of want to hold. I have a SketchUp model from a gentleman that's a Popwood subscriber. Um, he was he was restoring a Towsley, the exact same jointer at the same time. Um, actually, he was he he had just finished his, um, but he had a, a SketchUp model of the bearing blocks, the original bearing blocks that he sent me. So I'm like. Jeez, all that work's already done. I just have to send this to... Actually, I'm going to send it to Keith Rucker. He's going to do all the draft angles on it for the sand mold. Um, and then we'll send it off. I'll have a 3D model printed of it. 
we'll send that off to have the actual sand casting done and poured. Um, that's going to go to Breezy Hill Foundry down in Mississippi. Um, I'm I'm holding on that until I get the head because I want to make sure whatever bearing blocks I have cast are going to work with the head. So oh, I sure. want to make sure I have bearings here that fit on the head. The bearing blocks are sized for the bearings. We'll have them cast. I'll send them back to Keith. He'll machine out the inside, hopefully, to fit the bearings, and then life is good. I can see this roadblock coming. I never claimed that this jointer was going to be up and running within the year. <laughs> I'm hoping within three years. <laughs> so, Because that would be the downside I'd... of going with the vintage tools is that, for the most part, each one of them is a project. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's probably why when you see guys that have shops full of vintage tools, they don't really do much with the tools. <laughs> they're, they're more into the mach- into the fixing of the tools. Yeah. And they, you know, because those yeah. become projects of themselves, they right. don't actually get to do any projects. <laughs> so. Or you see people that have a divided shop that one side is the place where work gets done and then the other part is kind of the boneyard where yes. you know projects are awaiting their time yeah. on the lift so to speak yeah it's actually funny i saw um you know we didn't really talk much about this powermatic planer i picked up um and it was it's funny because i just saw a video from frank howarth on youtube oh yeah um, of installing a helical cutter head in his. I, I, he has the same planer as I have, except his is a little bit older. His is a green model. Uh, mine's mine is right when they switched to mustard gold. Okay. Um, his is one Plotchman's of the yellow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. His is one of the green ones. Um, but he installed a Lux cutter head in it, um, and he was really happy with it. So mine's already in there, so I'm not down mess around with that. So. Today's podcast is brought to you by Tightbond. You want a glue that you can trust. And fortunately, Tightbond has the glue you need to get the job done with confidence. From interior glues with strong initial tack and short clamp time to exterior glues with exceptional strength and water resistance, look to Tightbond, the right glue for your next project. For more information, visit tightbond.com. So, John, how would you say that your shop has changed? Oh, well, I have moved, so that's about it. No, <laughs> uh, I went for a long time without a table saw, and I don't know. I got a lot of stuff done there, and um, then I had, got a table saw, and I enjoy that. But it seems like lately I haven't like used it as much, and I, maybe that's just because... Um, you know, I can do a lot of that stuff here at our shop. Sure. So I don't know. I've been kind of kicking around just cause like space, uh, space wise, it takes up a lot of room and it's like, do I get rid of the table saw and go back to not having a table saw? Or the other thing is it's a contractor saw. So it has that big motor sticking out the back. So it's harder right. to like push up against the wall or push into a corner. So it's like, do I invest in getting the saw stop cabinet saw and will that, save room and be in good investment and I'll use it more just cause it's easier to, to have out and stuff. So, yeah. 
that's been my latest thing. And then other, the other thing is I have a separate Craig router table. And it's like, do I integrate that with the table saw to, to save the footprint, you know, gain back a little bit more space. So that's been the main thing is always, uh, kind of, you know, going through the debate of, is it worth the space or not? Cause I had a, a mortising machine for a while too, but it's like, it's just another machine that takes up space and, you can do mortises other ways. So it's like I've had stuff like that come in and out and just didn't make the cut as far as yeah. what it was worth for taking up space. So I guess that's the main thing is always as like just having a shared space of the garage and getting more kids and more kids toys. And <laughs> it's just, it's a, it's a constant battle. So, yeah. So I forget in your garage, do you, is that kind of your lawn care yard tools kind of place too? Or do you have a separate space for that? No, that's, we have a three car garage and the third stall is kind of shared as far as my tools and lawn care stuff. I don't have, I mean, I have a push mower and some rakes and stuff. So that stuff doesn't take up a huge amount of space, but six family members and everybody has at least one bike and, that adds up, and so you're always, especially during the summer when all that stuff's down and in and out of the garage, and, and so it's always just a constant battle. Yeah. But would you, John, ever consider going from your garage shop to like a he shed? <laughs> <laughs> he shed. Um, I don't know if I really have a space for that. I, I guess. If if I went the shed route, I would just kick That's the stuff out. Yeah, I would keep the garage and kick the other way stuff out. Way to be logical to, about yeah, it, John. Yeah. Jeez. So yeah, that's fair. Yeah, because I thought about that too. It's like we don't have a lot of yard space right now because there's, um, you know, we have a you know play set that the younger kids play on. But it's like, how much longer do they need that? I mean, two more years, three more years. It's like, when can I get rid of that stuff? So mm-hmm. yeah, it's just always in flux right now. Yeah but we'll get there kicking one kid out here soon. So send him off to college and then they'll be maybe I'll turn his flies. Yeah. Then I'll t- maybe turn his bedroom into a, a little shop, <laughs> you know, just sneak some tools in there. You know, it was funny. I, I feel like doing my seminar today, mm-hmm. which, so I, I, I hosted a seminar today for our um, woodsmith seminars that we do. And it was on setting up a turning shop. And I kind of just assumed or made the assumption that we were setting up a small turning shop, right? Mm -hmm. And it was kind of cool just standing there seeing how little I could get by with having a turning setup. Like, Mm -hmm. how small space I could do that. Like, jeez, you almost give me, like, one of those Rubbermaid 4x6 sheds, like the snap-together ones. You could almost set up an entire turning shop in there. I'm like, that's actually super cool. And, like, I have that – there's a weird appeal to that to me. I don't know why, um, but like maybe maybe I see it like as a retirement type thing. Like, hey, done building furniture. Like, let's just <laughs> set up, do what I want to do, and that's gonna be turning. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because what were you saying? Like twenty four square feet is what. Well, yeah. I'm just like... I'm sitting I'm standing there with with that lathe, and that cart, and I counted the floor tiles, which are a square foot, and it was mm-hmm. like six by four. Yeah. I'm like. Well, that's without that's the like bandsaw, a, but even yeah. 
That's like a bathroom. I well, like get rid of the like toilet under, and the sink yeah. and like put everything in there and you're good to go. Yeah, like that's or leave the cool. leave the toilet. You know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you're good. Yeah. So I don't well, know. I just it, it it was like it had a it held a weird appeal to me. Like this would be really cool. Mm-hmm. There were several things when coming up with the schedule for the seminars for this year and where I wanted to do that because well, part of it was some conversations that you that we had here in the studio in talking about turning and you know we've had other conversations on the podcast about what exactly woodworking is like what does it mean to be a woodworker and a lot of times because of what we do in our day jobs that we're trying to find and expand woodworking to a a large number of people that it ends up coming across that in order to do woodworking, you need an expansive space, a wide variety of tools. They're all of them must have. And I think it becomes a little intimidating for people to get started, you know, where, whereas, you know, I was watching, Peter Follinsby a few years ago built a new shop at his place in, I think he's in Massachusetts and he's a hand tool only woodworker and his shop ended up being kind of garden shed size. Like it's taller just because he was making it to be something more than just a storage space, but it's still not that much space, you know, and then a number of years ago, Uh, Popular Woodworking had that Arts and Mysteries column. And and I totally just lost his name. And he was talking Mm -hmm. about hand tool shops where you only needed X by X space because you just needed a workbench and kind of a place to put your tool chest, a place to stand, and like a place behind you to kind of keep stuff in process. And it was like, oh, all right. And then thinking about and getting to know more people who have specialties in woodworking, you know, where they're just turners, like that's what they do. Or we have another seminar coming up later this year on setting up a carving shop, you know, and, you know, if you're into carving, that doesn't take a lot of space either. And there are ways to get around not get around, but really focus on what are the tools that you need in order to do mm-hmm. the work you want to do. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if I could just start over from scratch, like what I would accumulate first or bring in first and just have a small area, but it's like, you know, over 20 some years of owning a house, you accumulate all of the odd tools and stuff that Mm -hmm. from home projects and, you know, specialized stuff or, and just things that you don't use as much, but you don't really want to get rid of. It's like, where would you, where would you start? Like you're saying, setting up the, the lathe shop and 24 square feet. It's like, what would I start with? That's kind of an interesting, I guess, take on it. If you could start from scratch, how much space would you really need? Yeah, I think I think it does kind of depend on what what where your interest lies, right? Like it has to. Oh I sure. Mean, 
I don't think you could say, hey, my interest lies in building, you know, Queen Anne great big high boys and stuff. And mm-hmm. I'm going to do that in this 14 square feet. It's like, eh, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, if you're assembling outside, but if you say, hey, you know what? I just want to make pens and that's all I want to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You need, you need under 20 square feet for that. Or if I just want to do chip carving, you need your, a porch rocker and a knife. Yeah. Right. So, but it's like, how do you, how would you have told your past self that hmm. without having gone through the different turns and without side, taking the journey side mm-hmm. trips, you know, cause when you, yeah. when you get into woodworking or you have that spark, you know, obviously it's, it's ignited by probably a specific project or something for your house or, or whatever. But then all of a sudden you step into that world and it's this wide mm-hmm. and you want to like see all the things, but, I mean, it's like the Doyle family going to Disney. Like mm-hmm. the park is humongous, Once. but yeah. everybody eventually finds their favorites. And, you know, you just go hit this section. Right. And how does it end? Where does it how... end? It just doesn't. Because <laughs> I would like yeah. to think that I would, you know, if I were able to go back in time and tell myself, like, hey, just don't with this. You're not going to like mm-hmm. it. It's not going to work out. Here what are the reasons. You say that, and to here are the reasons. About. Like, what? What would you tell yourself that don't do it? You're not going to care for it. Uh, I guess maybe I wouldn't put it that way. Like, the okay. cynical part of me would put it that way. The I would look at it as like you know, asking a series of questions or talking about. You know, the idea of woodworking is thrilling to me in the past because of why. And then, you know, make myself express that and then say, now, because of that, you know, let's carry these things out to a logical conclusion is that that means you don't need to think about this. Mm -hmm. This detour is probably going to be kind of a waste of time. And if you get started with these sorts of things, that's going to put you on the path that's that's bringing your satisfaction to where you're feeling it right now, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you're basically saying, Phil, past Phil, don't start that mortising machine. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're talking to the way you would talk to a like teenage, your teenage <laughs> child. It's like giving them the directions to the path, but they don't appreciate that until right. they've gone through it. Like, yeah, your parents did the same thing for you as a teenage, like told you the same thing. And it's just like, nah, I'm going to do it anyways. And then yeah. you get to the point where your parents are like, oh, that's what oh, they were talking about. And now I have to explain genius. it to my young self and they're just like yeah whatever old man and yeah (laughs) they won't appreciate it until they're speaking to their young selves and 
Right. No, there's so, definitely that so, level of you're not ready to you're just not ready to learn something yeah. until you have it presented before you. Mm-hmm. So I I totally get that. But I think and I've seen it in teaching woodworking classes. I think I get to try out various ways, you know, that I see, mm-hmm. you know, some people who are real beginners in woodworking and are really interested in blah, 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 but then think that they need to do or have or whatever, acquire X, Y, Z. And it's like, maybe you don't, you know, like maybe you're, and I, and I don't want to do it in a way that like with your kids, that doesn't encourage a sort of curiosity or experimentation in like, Hey, maybe you would like chip carving and that would be super cool. But I got interested in chip carving a number of years ago, shortly after I started here and got the two Wayne Barton knives and, you know, wanted to try stuff. And cause I liked the way that it, you know, it just kind of appealed to me on one cent. And then I started working on it and it's like, I don't know what I would do with this. Like now what, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I know other people well, like yeah. that's super cool for them. And uh, yeah. Yeah, man, hit it. Like, cause you don't need a lot of space for that. You need a solid bench, you know, to kind of hold stuff up, a place to sharpen your tools and a dustpan to pick up the little yeah. chips. Mm-hmm. Like go at it. Mm-hmm. That stuff is really exciting to me, but it's just not who I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Cause I would tell my earlier self, there was a long time where I thought turning was stupid. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like I was, and this was maybe before I realized that there's, you know, hollow forms and bowls. So that's what I like. Like, I don't, I don't care for spindles. Like I'll, I'll do chisel handles, but spindles are dumb. And I, I always thought it's like, Oh cool. You can turn rungs for a 1970s living room. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's what, that's what I had in my mind. Mm-hmm. And right. I don't know where my shift ended up being where I'm like, Ooh, yeah, I'm gonna try this. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause I remember I had a, actually probably 15 years ago, I got a, I bought a lathe from Brian Van Heverschwin that he got from the shop and I turned a couple of things on it, spindle type things. I'm like, this is stupid. And I sold it. (laughs) And now that's all I want to do. So is turning the NASCAR of woodworking where it's like, Oh, it's just going around in a circle. That's stupid. Who cares? But then you go <laughs> to like a race and you're like, oh, this is really cool. They're going fast. And I thought you were going to say like, like you get a sunburn and drunk from just talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's where I was going. Oh, okay. Yeah. No. Where it's like you don't really appreciate it until you get into the nuances. Yes. I guess. I, I, and... Yes. I would say yes. So. Like you think it's easy, you just turn left. Yeah. Until you just see it's like keep going. oh, it works better if I do it like this. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I think so. That's that was my analogy, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. Yeah. 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 Okay. So anyway, that's where I was kinda of going on it is just you know, like being able to find focus in your woodworking hobby while still allowing for some 
freedom to explore. Oh, I think you always have to be willing to explore and try new things, right? Like, I mean, I'm always one that it annoys me when somebody, I've been told this before. Like I invited a couple of people to go down to, um, like a private Jimmy clues class with me. I'm like, you guys should come. And they're like, we've been turning for 25 years. Like we don't need that. It's like, like that is something new. Well, yeah, that always annoys me when somebody's like, I'm a master. I don't need to, I don't need to, or they're, they're so close minded that they're like, you know what? I've done it this way for 60 years. This is how I'm going to keep doing it. Right. To me, it's like, really, you're, you're going to limit yourself by doing that. Like maybe not in whatever particular, um, task we're talking about, but in other aspects of your life, you're going to limit yourself by saying no. So it's where it's like, no, Phil, maybe you should pick up Intarsia just once, just to understand. <laughs> just give it a try. Just give you it a try even, once. You never even tried that. it. Yeah. Just make the panda and be done with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Chip carve the panda. Yeah. After you're done. Right. Chip carve the fur. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there you go. So that would be a question. What would you as the listeners tell your past selves about woodworking that would get them, that would get you to this place of satisfaction that you are now? Is there any advice that you could give and what would that advice be? What's your route to happiness? Yeah. Right. So there you are. Do you think this is kind of a tangent, right? But do you guys think that there's people that get satisfaction from completing projects? And there are people that get satisfaction just from doing stuff. Is that, is that fair to say? I get that. Yes. Cause sometimes I just like doing stuff. I don't have yeah. to like be at, you yeah. know, get to some sort of, and I just like tinkering. I mean, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Just thinking about people saying, you know, what what enjoyment do you get from woodworking? I think some people enjoy completing projects. Mm-hmm. Right. And having something to show from it. I think some people just like the aspect of doing something with their hands or making mm-hmm. something. Whether mm-hmm. they whether they actually like me, like I really complete projects, yeah, John kind of complete yeah. projects, yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, someday. Yeah. But then it's like That's then what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I finish one, that just means I'm gonna have to start another one. Yeah. So it's like I I I also think there is probably a, a I know there is a group of people that just enjoy learning as well. So right. whether or not they complete anything, whether or not they do anything, they just enjoy the aspect of learning. So yeah, I think along with the the doing, there are the the tinkerers, mm-hmm. kind of. That the people who enjoy seeing and understanding how tools work. Yes. So, you know, whether they, you know, if they weren't working on woodworking stuff in that broad category, they would or probably are also um, messing with an old car Mm -hmm. or you know, like we had a guy who was on staff here as an illustrator with uh, old tractors. He was into Ford, vintage Ford tractors. Like in that, mm-hmm. 
same kind of thing, you know, just being able to understand how something works, why it works, and to be able to put something back together. They're the type of people that there's always something wrong with their car that they're fixing. Yeah. Whether there actually is or isn't. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I think that's, that's all fair. And it's, and I think in my own experience, I've been each one of those people Mm -hmm. where it was, you see something and it's like, wow, I would really like to make that and you complete it and it's super cool. And it's, and it's all about, yeah, it's all about the project that this, Mm -hmm. there was a need. I was able to fill it with my own, you know, skill and time and patience on it. But then there's also the, you know, kind of a, for me, there's been a lot where it's been a delight in, in the making of it where the accomplishment is, man, I nailed that case assembly or these hinges fit exactly the way they're supposed to, or, Mm -hmm. you know, that carved surface has the look that I was aiming for. All right. So the free plan this week is one that um, I've been thinking about a little bit last couple of days. And it's for those people who like me, think that miter is a four letter word and it's a miter vice and it was a cool project that we did in shop notes and i have a number of picture frames that i need to make on my horizon here and one of the challenging parts is clamping up a miter because they just don't want to be clamped they don't want to be cut accurately they don't want to stay closed they don't want to be clamped miters want to be free this miter vise will bring your miters the control that they need. So if you want to just check that out at our show notes page, shopnotes.com slash podcast, or you can find the link on our YouTube channel as well. Special thank you to Tightbond for sponsoring today's episode. They have a wide range of glues Uh, that you need for a variety of your projects. Uh, Everything from kind of the specialty, like veneer glues. They have a cold press veneer glue that is amazing to use. And liquid hide glue, which I continually rediscover as my favorite glue. You'll find all of those and more at tightbond.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.